Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope that this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. Well, good morning. We can do a little bit better than that. Good morning. Thank you. It's good to see you all. Uh, I'm excited to get to talk to you this morning about Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21. And we're going to be picking up pretty much right where Pastor Adam left off. But before we get into our content and discussion this morning, I've been hearing a lot of questions about how to use this book. Um, Because we've done a resource and it's been connected to our sermon series in the summer differently every time we've done it. Uh, So there's been a lot of questions around how do we use it? Well, we're journeying through the book of Romans together this summer in 15 weeks. There are 16 chapters in this book. So what we would love is if you kept pace with about a chapter a week, you'll just have to end with one chapter as we wrap up. Now what you'll notice is in terms of sermon content, there are some chapters like chapter 5 that gets two Sundays, and chapter 8 you'll see gets two Sundays as well. Paul has a lot of thought going on in the book of Romans. It's the most written about book in the entirety of all of scripture. Uh, Peter himself calls Paul confusing and yet scripture nonetheless, and that we have to try to understand him. So we, as we're working through this series, want to make sure that we're highlighting some of the biggest, most important moments of Romans. Otherwise, if we preach just straight through Romans, you'd be here for three or four years. There's just so much richness in these texts. So try to pace along with us on a week-to-week basis. Don't get hung up on what the sermon passage is for the the Sunday morning. If you really want to and we preach on a particular sermon or uh, or a passage or a short snippet of scripture, read that the following week, but try to keep pace with that one chapter a week. There's a lot of content in here that will not come through or translate through our preaching. Uh, so that's, it's just meant to be a resource. The long as the short of it is, it's a book. Please read it. Uh, Paul is complex. Romans 5, 12 through 21 is no exception. And to not get lost in some of his back and forth usage, his tongue twister language that he gets into sometimes, instead of reading 12 to 21 in its entirety, we're going to skip around in a couple of verses. We'll be in verses 12 15 and 17. So if you haven't turned there yet, please do uh, and turn there in your Bible, your Bible app. It's going to be on the screen. So as we jump around, it might be easier just to read it from the screen. Uh, We're going to come partly in verse 12 and I'll read it for us. It says, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? In this passage, we encounter some of the most fundamental themes of our Christian faith. Unfortunately, we as individuals and the church at large has misinterpreted 
several of these themes. And it kind of equates to building the house on a foundation that's not entirely secure. So this morning, what I want us to do is try to look at these themes that we're going to talk about this morning with fresh eyes. Because what we're trying to do is to relay a quality, sound foundation of our faith that we can build our lives and even the church life around. So here are the five key themes that we're going to be walking through together and getting more depth on. Sin and grace, gift, relationship, obedience, and righteousness. Sin and death, gift, relationship, obedience, and righteousness. Before we move on, I want to point out that this might be the first non-three-pointed sermon I have ever preached. I heard a clap. I will likely return, so don't hold me to that, and say prayers that this doesn't go twice as long. Twice as many points, twice as long. I'm kidding. There's someone back here with a shepherd's hook that's willing to pull me off stage if I go too long. We'll be okay, I promise. Now, let's, let's turn to the theme of sin and death. In verse 12, Paul introduces us to the law of sin and death. Here's what he says in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. I don't know if you caught a couple important words here, sin and death. I think it's significant that we understand what sin is since, you know, death is the result of sin. So let's make sure we understand what sin is before we move on. Uh, it's a big theme through the book of Romans. So let's define sin. Theologian J.I. Packer defines sin this way. Scripture diagnoses sin as a universal deformity of human, of human nature, found at every point in every person. Sin may be comprehensively defined as lack of conformity to the law of God in act, habit, attitude, outlook, disposition, motivation, and mode of existence. In other words, here's, here's what Packer's saying. Here's the gist of it. Sin is any time we go against the will of God in thought, word, or action. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus described just how easy it is to sin. And this is what he said. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. So if we can commit murder by hating someone, then it is very easy to sin. As Jesus describes here, we see that sin can even be an involuntary action or thought. Let me describe this to you this way. How many of you have ever been driving and are suddenly cut off by a car? Slamming the brakes on, screeching the whole bit. Have you ever done this? Any experience? Show of hands. Some of you have experienced this. In the next moment that follows, have you ever said something or thought something that did not adhere to your Christian values? Never. Never. <laughs> I heard something. Never. Never happens. This is the involuntary action of sin. Something happened to us. It made us emotionally charged. And then we had a response. And it goes against what we know is the will of God. In that moment, when we thought those thoughts against our brother or sister driving in the car in front of us, we hated him or her. We acted on that hate. And Jesus says, that's as good as having murdered them. So that's 
the nature of what we're talking about here. That's how easy it is to sin. Sin isn't something that we just purposefully do. It's innate within us. It's an involuntary knee-jerk reaction. When Adam and Eve sinned, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, what happened was there was a rewiring of our brains. St. Augustine called it the noetic effects of sin. Basically, he would say that that sin and how it changed our minds affects the way that we see and process and do everything that we do. It's a filter. It's a horrible filter through which all information, knowledge, and activities transfer through. And it's passed on generation to generation. Every human has been negatively rewired in their brain and in their action because of sin from Adam and Eve. So now that we understand sin and how it's a part of all of us, why does sin result in death? If you're like me and you've read through scriptures, I have found myself at times going, that seems like a really harsh punishment. Why is it that a sin results in death? But I think we need to transition for a minute away from this thought of punishment. It's not saying that God is not angry or he doesn't get upset when we sin or things that happen. But what I do want to appreciate as we're framing up sin is recognizing that my sin or whatever I did, that name that I called that person that cut me off a week ago in the car, God was not surprised by that response. He sees all things. He's all-knowing. We get that all the way back in Genesis When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, God had a response in Genesis 3.15. He was ready. He was not surprised. He was not taken off guard. And so within that, what I want us to try to reframe our minds to think is that God's not carrying a clipboard, walking around, checking off every time we sin, and then erupting in anger every time we sin. There's not this destruction, vengeful mentality of God responding to our sin. He knew it was coming. He can stay somewhat emotionally disconnected or emotionally regulated. When my daughter does the same thing she's done 900 times, I expect it. She's done it 900 times before. I'm not absolutely irate and furious and want destruction and revenge on her for having done that thing. God's the same way. So instead of thinking about sin primarily as punishment... I think we have to think in terms of mathematics more. I watched one of you roll your eyes. Math is okay. It is our friend. And we won't get too deep into math. Don't worry. But I, I think we need to look at death as a consequence of sinful action. Death is the result. It's like the end of a math problem. Two plus two results in four. Death, sin results in death. And I have this illustration that I think will help us uh, process this a little bit more. Um, Think of board games for a minute. Do you know any board game players that are obsessed with the rules? Anyone know? Any rule-obsessed board game players? None of you. You've never had this experience. You should meet my family. My wife, my mother-in-law, and my grandmother-in-law are all obsessed with playing the game the right way. The right way. It's not about fun. It's not about fellowship. It's about winning and playing the right way. There's a right way and a wrong way to play these things. I didn't know this on my first vacation that I spent with them. My father-in-law did not engage the game playing, and I couldn't understand why. They asked me, do you want to play? Sure, why not? Let's play. 
By the end of that hour and a half long experience, and they played for nine hours, mind you, I slept in the garage that night. I'm not kidding. They were serious. They were ruthless. Do not play games with these people. Uh, It's crazy. Anyway, whenever there's a question about a move that they don't like or rules or anything along these lines, you know, the page comes out. We deeply evaluate the rules and judge whether or not that was a right move or a wrong move or whether or not I'm allowed to do what I just did. And somehow, in all cases, I was always wrong. Anyway, if you're not playing by the rules, I have no bitterness. You can sense this, right? No animosity. I'm not mad. It's going to be okay. If you're not playing by the rules, you aren't actually playing the game. Rule followers, amen? There was a lot of response last service. Y'all are too calm. If you're not playing by the rules, you're not playing the game. If you don't follow the rules of Monopoly, you're not playing Monopoly, right? You're playing something else, something else you constructed. God has established the rules to what it means to have life. So if we don't follow these rules, it makes sense that we're not actually participating in the game of life. We're not playing in that game. And if we're not participating in life, then we'll eventually arrive in the opposite of life. What's the opposite of life? Death. Death is the opposite of life. So if we decide that God has made all of the rules of existence and breathed life into the very nostrils of Adam and Eve, and we recognize this to be true, then we recognize God sets up the rules for what it means to be alive. If we decide that we do not want to participate in said rules, then we are participating not in life, but in death. Over time, the participation in death will work itself in such a way, guess what happens? We die. It's the result of death. In this way, death is a natural result of sin. But praise God, Paul does not stop at verse 12. Can I get an amen? That would be depressing, would it not be? If that's all he said, if that was it, then we stopped here. That would be depressing. God devised a plan through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to give us a gift. So let's talk about gifts for a couple of minutes. In verse 15, Paul says this, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? By Jesus's perfect obedience in his life, death, and resurrection, we are offered the gift of righteousness. The language of gift is very important but often very misunderstood. So let's lean into this for a little bit. In some translations of verse 15, the gift is called a free gift. This is the case in the NASB, the ESV, the RSV, the New King James, the King James Version, and several other different versions. Now, I noticed that the NIV didn't have it, so I looked back in the old NIV from 1984. That didn't have it either. So me being curiously wired as I am, I opened up my Greek New Testament to see what was going on. Free is not actually in the Greek New Testament to describe gift. It's our frame of reference from the West in interpreting what gifts mean. Well, gifts aren't really free. I don't believe you can ever receive a no-strings-attached gift. It's why I hate participating in white elephant gifts. 
I sit there thinking about the room dynamics, who's going to be in the room, what my friends are, and I stress over the fake gift that I'm bringing into the room because I don't want to be perceived as unthoughtful or uncaring. It's why I get stressed if someone gives me a gift at Christmas and I didn't expect it and I don't have a gift for them. Have you ever been there? It's a free gift. Why am I stressed? It's not a free gift. There's expectations. Right? If I give you a gift, you, I have this expectation that you'll use the gift. Right? Do any of you from your, your wedding have a closed up waffle maker that you've never used? Does it haunt you? No, probably not. But the intention of that gift giver was you'd use that waffle maker. If not, you didn't use it. You didn't use the gift. The second thing is, gifts are not actually about the gift. They're about the relationship. If I give you a gift, especially at Christmas time, in the most intimate settings of gift-giving relationships, I'm giving gifts to my family and to my friends. And when I give this gift, it's not just, here, take this inanimate object in a box. I'm giving you a piece of me, who I am. It's an invitation to a deeper relationship. And so in that way, I think that there is no free gift. I think, or I shouldn't say free gift, no strings attached gifts. There's an expectation to use said gift, and it's an invitation to a deeper relationship with the gift giver. Now to land this home a little bit more, I remember vividly the first night that I got to hold my daughter in my arms. My wife had fallen asleep. The moonlight is coming in at probably midnight, and I'm studying my daughter's face because I'm overwhelmed with fear of what this next season's gonna be like, and I'm overwhelmed with emotion at how can I love this thing so much already, and you've been in my life for but a couple hours. And then I'm overwhelmed by this thought in the quiet. I look at my daughter and I instinctively know that I would do anything for her to protect her. And then I think about the cross. And I think about that my heavenly father took his baby and sacrificed that baby for me, for my benefit. And I start weeping uncontrollably, overwhelmed by the grace of God in that sacred moment of I would never let anything happen to my daughter, but my father in heaven gave up his baby for me? Tremendous, unfathomable. And then I think about that as that is the core, the basis of this gift of righteousness gift I receive. So when I think about gift exchange, I start thinking about that intimate relationship of this baby, God's baby, given on behalf of me. God's gift did not happen in an emotionless vacuum. John 3.16 makes that clear. In John 3.16, we read, For God so loved the world. Can you say loved? For God so loved the world. It's not this an emotionless state, is it? The gift was given out of a posture of love. And so I think about that emotional background, and I think about the gift given to me of God's Son, and I think about this mentality that we have in the West of a no-strings-attached gift. I can't see the gift of righteousness be given to me in this take the gift and just walk away and never ever anything else come of that. The gift of Christ 
was a restorative gift. It was a gift so deeply saturated in intimate relationship and self-sacrificial love that it was meant to carry us all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, where Adam and Eve walked with the Lord in the cool of the night, that depth of intimacy of relationship. The gift given to us through Christ on the cross is to restore that relationship. If we take this mentality of free gift and just grab the gift of righteousness and walk away without any type of relationship, I'm afraid then we've missed the entire point of the gospel. Can you receive the gift of righteousness and just walk away no strings attached? Maybe. I don't want to put limitations on God's grace and what he can do and what he will do for his sons and daughters. But I can say 100% with total and complete confidence, that was not the point. The point of the gift was not to walk away. The point was to deepen relationship. Which brings me to this point of obedience. No other relationship other than marriage has taught me what it means to have obedience connected into a relationship. Before getting married, I knew that faithfulness to my bride was required, right? We know this. But because I had never been in a relationship with the same type of depth, I did not realize all that it meant to support, love, and encourage her. In any deep relationship, any deep relationship, Even father-son, father-daughter, mother-son, mother-daughter, any deep relationship, there are a lot of do's and a lot of don'ts that we must follow to preserve relationship. Now, if we view them as rules or laws, simply as things to obey, devoid of relationship, we're going to become resentful because we don't operate through legalistic views. We don't want to just have our limitations or or limitations put on our lives. After all, we're Americans. The foundation of who we are is our personal freedom. I don't like you to limit my freedom. So if my relationship devolves into a bunch of rules and regulations, I'm not going to want to stay in that relationship. It goes against my values. However, if we view these do's and don'ts as ways to love, honor, value, encourage, and support the other person in our relationship, then we transition from this thought of legalism to relationship. And that's what Paul's doing in the book of Romans. He is inviting Christian readers to transition their thoughts from Old Testament legalism to New Testament relationship. Now, he's also not advocating that this gift is entirely free. We get this language of free gift from we don't have to pay for it. It's true. There is no money you're going to count out to pay for that gift. But if we walk away without any type of depth of relationship and any obedience to our Father, then I think we've missed the point. We didn't engage the relationship, and that was the point from the very beginning. God's gift of righteousness restores us to this amazing and beautiful place of capacity for depth of relationship with the person that breathed out stars and intimately weaved you together in your mother's room. So what does righteousness mean? 
Gift of righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is legal language denoting that a person is obeying the law. It's this sign pointer that Paul interweaves into Romans to say, this gift transports you back to Genesis 2. It transports you to this place where you can have intimate relationship, deep knowing by your Father who loves you. That you are no longer banished from the presence of God. That sin and death will not have the final word. Wow, you are way too calm for this. We are no longer banished from God's presence. Sin and death will not have the final word. All right, I'm going to do it again. We are no longer banished from his presence. Sin and death will not have the final word. Friends, this is good news. It is the reversal of the weight of sin and death in our life. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, if we accept the gift of righteousness, we too will live in eternity with him. We will be raised like him. We can be co-heirs with him. To accept this gift of righteousness, it's also important for us to know and realize God is not expecting perfection. He's expecting participation. The obedience required by relationship is not broken when we fail to obey, provided that we repent. He recognizes the sinful nature with which we wrestle. It, wouldn't, it would be strange if I looked at my daughter and expected her to act like a 30-year-old tomorrow. She's four. She's limited by her capacity. We're limited by our capacity. So Christ gives us grace and mercy. Mercy by not giving us what we deserve and grace by giving us what we do not deserve. So this morning, what I want to frame up for us is that we have this opportunity to participate in the greatest gift, the most intimate gift that you have been, ever been given. This full strings attached, I love you bigger than you can ever imagine, will sacrifice more than you could ever know so that I can have deep, intimate relationship with you. That's the gift that's on the table this morning. And I want to frame us up with some space that we have the capacity to respond. Maybe you've accepted the gift that Jesus has offered, this gift of righteousness, but you accepted it in a no-strings-attached way. And that you know that you've walked away holding that gift, but you have not entered the depth of relationship. This morning, I want to give you the invitation to enter into a deep, abiding relationship with the Father, the one who would not even withhold his own little baby for you. Perhaps you've never accepted the gift of righteousness. Perhaps this is something entirely new and utterly different. This is an opportunity for you this morning to have a connection, a deep relationship with the great I am, the one who knows you, loves you, and intimately formed you in your mother's womb. It's an opportunity to have a relationship with the greatest being, the most beautiful thing that you could ever imagine. That op opportunity is open for you.
So I'm going to invite you to say this prayer quietly after me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of righteousness. I know that you gave me this gift to deepen our relationship. Forgive me for running from you and your ways. This morning, I commit myself to you. Please forgive me. I love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship God together. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church Podcast. To stay connected to all that God is doing here at Redeemer, visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a blessed week.